and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Hey, thank you guys for being here with us um, today. I'm going to read our scripture verses for us. Um, The first one comes from Romans 12, shocker, um, verse 14, uh, which is, Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. The second scripture comes from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for this room. And thank you for these people, and I thank you for a moment together. Um, I pray that in these moments together, you would, uh, I don't know what we pray all the time here, that you would give us the courage to look inside ourselves at uh, what you might be doing, what you might want to say to us. Um, Yeah, I just feel like today uh, I need an extra dose of courage. We all might need an extra dose of courage to talk about uh, these scriptures. And so would you just be with us? Would you give us eyes to see your work in us and around us and the courage to join that work. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, it is good to be here. Uh, welcome. I am Lindsay. I'm the pastor here. So if you're new with us, we really are so glad that you have decided to be with us today. Um, at, we've been, we spent our entire summer in Romans 12. We're not done yet, but we are kind of at... Um, no, a little bit of a turn in Romans 12. I'm actually skipping ahead a few verses, though we're going to go back next week anyway. Um, but uh, we've done, I keep joking that we haven't even gone verse by verse. We've gone half verse by half verse. We're just really slowly going through Romans 12. Um, and we've done heavy lifting, and we've gone back to the Greek, and we've done word studies and all sorts of things. Um, but today is going to be kind of uh, conceptual. And um, really, I, we're really zeroing in on the verse that Jamie read, Romans 12, 14 about praying for our enemies. Um, but to, do, to set that up, I want to tell you a story uh, that I read about recently that took place uh, during a period of Irish history called uh, the Troubles. Uh, there are other names for what was happening in Ireland at the time, but my personal favorite term is the Troubles because I just think it, I don't know, sounds amazing. It was a terrible time, so I don't know why I like this term. But, um, but uh, the Troubles were like a low-level uh, war in Northern, I- Northern Ireland during the late 1960s to, I think it ended on Good Friday of 1998. So like this 
30-year, um, uh, it's also called an irregular war. So some of us in the room were alive for this period of time or parts of this period of time. Um, for time's sake, I won't get into all the particulars of the war, though please know that I want to uh, because I took way too deep of a dive into this over the last few weeks. But um, to put it broadly... In Ireland, two Irish groups were very much in uh, a disagreement about the degree to which they wanted to continue to like submit to the British government or be linked to the British government. And it's often talked about as Catholics and Protestants, though it really isn't that simple. It wasn't um, predominantly a religious war. Um, uh, it, it is simply, the, uh, the reason that it said that is it's simply that the Irish Catholics were nationalists and they wanted um, Ireland to be its own country, to be an autonomous uh, entity. And um, the Protestants were British loyalists who wanted to remain linked in some ways to the British government. These are really big, broad categories. Some of you history geeks are like, you're kind of close, um, <laughs> but big, broad category. So um, as part of the Troubles, uh, during the Troubles era, uh, these new like paramilitary groups started to emerge. And one of these on the side of the Irish nationalists was uh, a group called the IRA, which you may have heard of or seen movies about, or uh, the IRA or the Provisional Irish Republican Army. Um, and, and the IRA campaign killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over uh, this 30-year uh, span of time. In fact, they were responsible for more deaths uh, in Ireland and for British government officials than any other group that organized during the entire time. So, uh, in, with all that knowledge, um, in November of 1987, uh, a man named Gordon Wilson took his family to a Remembrance Day celebration. And in um, uh, the UK, Remembrance Day would be kind of like our Memorial Day celebration, um, remembering soldiers that were lost during the uh, first two world wars. So he goes with his family to a Remembrance Day celebration. He lived in an Irish town called Inisilken, and he worked downtown as a draper. And so being a draper gave him kind of a special view of the war. Because some people would come in and say, we won't wear any clothes that are native to Ireland. And other people would come in and say, we won't wear any clothes that have a Union Jack anywhere on them. And, and so he kind of had this um, special view. So he goes downtown. His downtown in the city had a little square, uh, like a town square where there was a monument. And that's where they were holding the celebration. And so Gordon and his family found their way down to the town square. But uh, unbeknownst to them, the IRA had planted a bomb uh, in one of the town's reading rooms right on the other side of the monument. And the bomb was set to go off at 1043. Uh, the celebration was starting at 1045, so two minutes before everything started uh, to happen, this, this bomb explodes and ends up killing 11 people and injuring six people. And part of the way that that happens is that when it exploded, the structures around the town uh, center, uh, they started to fall. There was rubble everywhere, and, 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 and walls would fall, and structures would fall, and it trapped families and, and people underneath these structures, uh, sometimes for hours or a few for days. And Gordon Wilson and his daughter were two of the people that uh, were, were, were trapped. A, a wall fell and they were trapped underneath it, um, but they were trapped together under a collapsed wall for many, many hours. Uh, both of them were significantly injured, uh, but they could talk to each other. And so as they spent these hours under the wall, uh, they talked. And then eventually they're rescued and they're taken to the hospital where Gordon Wilson survives the injuries, but his sweet daughter Maria, the nurse, does not survive. 
Two days after the bombing, uh, BBC News comes to Inesilkin to do interviews with anyone who survived the bombs or witnessed them, and they interview Gordon Wilson. He's one of the interviews. And I, I watched the interview. You can look it up on YouTube. I watched it this week. It's incredibly powerful. Um, speaking, I believe, from the hospital uh, with cuts still on his forehead hours after the death of his daughter, uh, when he's asked about his experience with her and his experience in the bombing, this is what Gordon Wilson says. He said, she held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those are the last words I ever heard her say. And then, to the astonishment of the listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. So I will pray for these men tonight and every night. To the best of my understanding, uh, this interview uh, did whatever the 1980s equivalent of going viral did. There was no YouTube then, but it, it, it went everywhere. And you can read about it all throughout history. There's a historian named Jonathan Barden who wrote tons about the Troubles. And what Jonathan Barden says is, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland have had such a powerful emotional impact. Uh, an Irish journalist 30 years later called his interview with Gordon Wilson his favorite of his entire career. He went as far as to say that it was the closest he would ever be in the presence of a true saint. That same journalist uh, interviewed Desmond Tutu in South Africa later, and they talked about Gordon Wilson's piece. It seems to me that everyone that heard his words remembered what he said and was marked by the grace of them. It's a, it's a time literally called the Troubles, and Gordon Wilson prayed for his enemies, and people paid attention to that prayer. Uh, a year after the bombing happened, um, uh, Gordon Wilson invited news crews to show up, and they did like a remembrance celebration around the town square again. And in that, a year later interview, he's, he, he says that because of his faith in Jesus, he was still working to forgive the bombers that killed his daughter, that he was still praying for peace for them every night, for grace and peace over their lives. Uh, Wilson went on um, till the end of his life to be a peace campaigner. He joined the Irish Senate at one point. Uh, and then also in his life, multiple times, he actually met with leaders of the IRA and begged them for peace. Uh, they actually, the IRA, actually apologized to him for the loss of his daughter. Uh, there's an interview that is wild uh, where one of the leaders of the IRA uh, is quoted as saying this. She says, Gordon's words that day, they shamed us all and they caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we had become used to. They brought a stillness with them. They carried uh, a sense of transcendence into a place that has become so ugly, we could hardly bear to watch him. It's, it's an incredible story. Uh, but to tell it honestly would be uh, to say this, that while it seems that everyone heard Gordon's words, from civilians to journalists to paramilitary leaders, uh, not everyone was pleased with them. Uh, Gordon received like bags and bags of hate mail from people. Uh, letters from people who couldn't believe uh, the scandal. Uh, people who would say, how on earth could you forgive them? What kind of father would forgive or meet with his daughter's killers? What kind of father would pray for them? Uh, people wrote it off publicly as mental illness or as like the blind faith that happens from the shock of a tragedy. Even though throughout Gordon's life, he never changed his tune. 
Uh, he never demanded revenge. He always spoke and prayed for peace in the name of Jesus. People still attacked and didn't believe it. Uh, the thing about Gordon Wilson that I think is so intriguing uh, 40 years or more than 40 years later is, is that his forgiveness offered him a freedom that I think is hard to look away from. It's a compelling thing uh, to read about and to watch. And that kind of freedom is, is, is inspiring, but it's also challenging or, or possibly insulting to anyone who doesn't walk in that level of freedom. Because that's what we do, right? Uh, when we see someone walking in something very difficult, something we might struggle ourselves to walk in, we either elevate them or we discredit them, right? Yes, they're amazing, or that can't be true. They're not doing that. Especially, I think, in the freedom of forgiveness, because the freedom of forgiveness invokes the scandalous nature of grace. Uh, I want to quote Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. This is the first place I heard uh, about the story. And, and talking about the story, he says this. He says, you know, people name their daughters grace. And we sing songs about grace. And we think it is this beautiful thing. But actually, uh, there, but there actually is this really scandalous side when it comes to grace. The wideness of God's mercy begins to include people we hate. The wideness of God's mercy begins to include people we hate. It begins to include people we despise or have wronged us or we think don't deserve it. And then it's really, really disturbing, this whole grace thing. That's, I think, what makes the passage that we read today from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 so incredibly wild. Because Jesus, uh, in the middle of his sermon, uh, tells us to pray for our enemies. Jesus, in front of a crowd, widens the view of God's mercy to include the people who have hurt you. To include the people that we hate, the people we despise, the people we avoid. And then Paul repeats it uh, back in Romans 12. In a chapter of a letter where he's, all, he's talking all about building a culture of grace and hope into the church. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Uh, I read something that Gordon Wilson said about his first interview. Years later, they were like, do you still stand by those words? And he said, uh, he said that he blurted those words out from the depths of his heart. And then he has spent the rest of his life struggling to live them out, trying and working to live them out. And he didn't give up. And I needed to know that that was hard. <laughs> I needed to know that. Gordon Wilson followed Jesus, and that led him to pray for peace, to believe that no amount of cursing or ill will would bring back his daughter or bring peace to his land. Uh, he set his sights on the freedom of forgiveness, and then he spent the rest of his life struggling but committed to walk out that life, to walk out that path. And here's something about forgiveness. I think maybe it's why, uh, it's why some of the people got so mad at Gordon Wilson and sent him letters because uh, forgiveness gets talked about sometimes, I think, like a, a transaction that we offer someone else who wronged us, that, that forgiveness is for them. It's like something we do to set uh, them free. But if you've ever had to forgive something truly awful or something truly hard to forgive in your life, then you know two things. You know that forgiveness uh, doesn't have all that much to do with the other person. It has a whole lot to do with yourself. And then you also know that it's not a one-time thing. It's something you have to wake up and choose over and over and over and over again. 
I think that Gordon Wilson knew this. I think that's why he would uh, commit to staying the course of forgiveness throughout a lifetime. Uh, He kept choosing it over and over and over again, not because it set the IRA free, but because it set him free. It um, makes me think about something I read uh, recently. I I read this book called Outlive by a guy named Peter Atiyah. And if we've hung out in the last two weeks, we have talked about it. Um, I'm sorry, but also it's great. Uh, But uh, Peter Atiyah uh, is like uh, this longevity guy. And he has this thing he calls the centenarians decathlete or decathlon. And basically what he says is is that um, we need to pick 10 things that we want to be able to do when we're 100. And then we work on those things now. So, for example, if you, when you're 100, want to be able to walk up a flight of stairs, you can't start training for that at 99, right? We need to start working on it earlier. You can't even start, you know, don't start your training at 90, start your training at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. And so he says that you work backward. You say where you want to be, and then you you do these things um, to help you attain your goals. And as I've been thinking about this and, like, writing my own uh, list of physical goals, I've also kind of been thinking about goals I have uh, for when I'm 100, which LOL is not going to happen, but, um, but, you know, for like 85, you know, um, uh, I, I, but my 20s were rough, but anyway, um, but as I'm writing out these goals, I'm like, when I become 100, I, I want to have spiritual goals and emotional goals, uh, and one of those goals for me comes from the scriptures that we read today. It comes from stories like Gordon Wilson and uh, people like my friend Miranda, who like walks this path of freedom and leads all of us in it. Here's my goal. Um, when I'm 100, I don't want to be holding anything against anybody. I don't want that life. I, I told Daniel over Christmas, I was like, I am on a relentless journey to rid myself of resentment. And it is a long journey. <laughs> There's a lot there. I want to follow Jesus into greater and greater and greater freedom. I don't want to be 100 and holding all this stuff. That's on my list. And so I'm saying it in front of you because the reality is if I want to be there at the end of my life, I have to start now. Uh, At at today years old, I have to get on, which is 40 and almost 41 next Friday. So leave your presents when you drop off your... uh, sodas for those stock the fridge. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I have to get on that path, path now. I have to commit myself to the journey at today years old, not 100 years old. And I'm hoping that you'll join me and that I won't be alone on this journey, that you will take Jesus at his word and Paul at his word and to choose to begin to live a life of forgiveness, a life of, of finding freedom and letting go. So how do we do it? on a super practical level. Um, Listen, I love stories, and the story of Gordon Wilson, I think, is a really, really good story. But I also get that for a lot of us in the room, it's kind of an extreme um, version of this. Most of us have not uh, lived uh, under the risk of paramilitary organizations. But here's what I do know. Uh, Life is hard. And I don't want to rank how hard your life is up against how hard somebody else's life is. That does not feel like it's honoring to humanity at all. Life is just hard. We all interact with other humans. We all have hurts and and we all have pain. I mean, we all come from a family of some kind, right? Like a good one or a bad one or some sort of word that's more complex than those are able uh, to do. We we all come from a, a family of origin and therefore we all have hurts and pain. 
a, a writer I love who is a wild animal, her name is Anne Lamont, uh, she wrote an article years ago, and the, the topic of it was everything I know, you know, no pressure, just everything I know. Um, and she, in this article called Earth Forgiveness School, I loved it, here's her direct quote, she says, Earth is forgiveness school. You might as well start at your dinner table. That way you can do the work in your comfortable pants. I love that. So how do we begin the work of forgiveness? How do we know where to start? Uh, I have two tips for you, only two. I've just started this week, so uh, two tips. Um, One is start with the dinner table. Take Anne's advice. Start with your family. Someone there has hurt you. Someone in your family of origin has hurt you or betrayed you or abandoned you or failed to notice you. Someone died without your permission. Someone left you physically, maybe mentally. And pray for your family uh, as you move toward forgiveness. And here's the thing. Forgiveness is not exoneration uh, in the like legal sense. Again, it is not really about the other person at all. It is about you. It is exoneration for you. So start with your family, um, and then work your way out from there. Uh, here's tip number two, and I want to skip over this one. But my other tip is change the way you define enemy. Uh, if you've heard, if you've been at Springbird for a while, you've heard us uh, talk about en- enemies around here, and you've heard us redefine the word enemies in a way that makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, But also, to be honest, it's changed my life and set me free in new ways. So uh, here's how we define enemy. An enemy is anyone who you feel resentment or hostility toward or wish to avoid interacting with. That's a good place to start, too. Can you think of anyone you feel resentment or hostility toward or you avoid if you see them in public? For some of you, that's every person in the room during Passing the Peace. (laughs) I think sometimes the reason that we don't follow Jesus' command to pray for our enemies is because we don't think we have any. We're good Christians, right? We don't have enemies. But as humans, I hate to spoil it for you, but as a human, we are far too petty for that. We just are. I, I think our definition of enemies could use some rethinking that Paul taught us just a few verses ago that he challenged us in. Uh, We have a resource that we use around here a lot, Um, and uh, we're going to have it on the screen during our sale today. It'll also be on social media this week if if you want to get it. but it's a prayer. It's a prayer that I use personally a lot, often, um, and I use it to pray for the people uh, around my dinner table whom I adore, but who also bother me and make me mad sometimes. Um, I use it to pray for big hurts, and I use it to pray for small hurts, um, and it uh, it changed my life. It's my way of training now for who I want to be now, but then also who I want to be when I'm a uh, hundred. Because for me, uh, this prayer is a very tangible way for me to experience the scandalous widening of the mercy of God to include the people who have hurt me. Uh, we've used this prayer a lot around here, and here's why. Because I think we need it. Because I need a reminder often. Here's the other reason. I think Jesus meant what he said. I think he meant it when he said to pray for our enemies. And I think Paul did too. Uh, So we need to put it on the screen a couple times a year and pray it over and over and over again. We need to look at our definition of enemy a few times a year and, and look at our life with that in mind. 
Uh, and then we, we need to pray for these people. We need to pray for God to bless them and to keep them, to raise them above ourselves. That's how the line goes. The first line is, or second line is, give them success and honor above what you give me. The first part of every line of this prayer is really hard. Like, God bless it and give them success. The second part is excruciating because it says, above me. Uh, my friend Seth wrote the prayer, and I was talking to him one day, and I was like, why the second part? Ugh. And he said, because of that. And I was like, because of what? And he said, ugh. And I was like, and he was like, because of that, because this is for you. Because this prayer is for you. And when it makes you uncomfortable, there's something there. So um, if you do this prayer at home, uh, the, the rule is you're supposed to do it until you can smile. Uh, for me, the rule is you're supposed to do it and... <laughs> <laughs> Or you're supposed to like at least get one sentence in. That's my goal some days. Like if I can just say God bless, you know, Daniel who chews his cereal so loud. <laughs> Would you raise him above me? <laughs> He's over your friend. He is, he is. He's like God bless having a preacher for a wife. I did not give consent to that story. Um, <laughs> okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to pray. And we're going to take, a, a, I was going to say we're going to take a minute, but we're going to take minutes. Uh, and we're going to do this all together, uh, safer in a group, right? Um, and we're going to put these words on the screen. And I don't know who your person is. I don't know who your people are. But uh, they'll be up there. And I would love for you to pray uh, along with us. Um, and so I want to just pray first, make room and space. Uh, and then we'll just take a few minutes and we'll work through this prayer. It'll be on the screen. You just do it on your own time. And... Um, then we'll come to the table at the end of it. feels right to pray for our enemies, then come to the table. So, so let me pray for us and bless it. So Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that your grace and your mercy is wide enough for us. I pray that you would fill us um, with the kind of vision and courage that would make room um, for a wide and scandalous grace to include those who have hurt us, those who have betrayed us, those who just bother us. So I pray that you would bring someone or someones to our mind, and I pray that as we begin these first steps of learning to walk in forgiveness, I just ask that your spirit would come. Would you set us free? Would you help us commit to a path, a life of freedom in you? In your name we pray. Amen.